You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. talking about the roots of American music today. And with me is the guy who almost coined the term <laughs> American roots. Uh, this is um, Nick Spitzer, who day by day is a professor at, at, at Tulane, but who is really well known for this series, this radio series he's developed, Exploring American Roots. He's been doing this for more than the past 25 years. Uh, he's done like 700 episodes and has interviewed like 1,200 people uh, with his show. And within that, he plays bits and pieces of songs and all that. And so this is a guy who's explored it. It's a really important show that you do. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean it truly has explored uh, the roots of America. Um, we're going to start off with a clip from one of his shows, a brief <laughs> clip. But, Nick, you want to introduce it? Well, yeah, we play a mix, but we try and tell stories with the mix. We try and, you know, let people know from lyrics and style what they mean. And so we decided we'd do a North Louisiana, South Louisiana pairing. And from uh, South Louisiana, we have Clifton Chenier singing in Creole, playing the big piano accordion. And then North Louisiana, we have the late legendary, both are actually late legendary, but from North Louisiana, from Faraday, Jerry Lee Lewis playing the piano um, and actually singing about New Orleans. So it all seemed like it would be nice to hear both of them side by side. So we cut it down to size here and you can give a, listen to the mix of the segue. So we have a combination of Jerry Lee Lewis and Clifton Chenier. Right. So for all of you listening, that right there is worth your, uh, your the cost of your ticket to get that. Okay. Stay so tuned. Anyway, <laughs> all right. And so let's listen to this. My name is Jerry Lee Lewis. I come from Louisiana. I'm going to do your little boogie on this here piano. Doing mighty fine. I'm going to make you shake it. I'll make you do it and make you do it until you break It's called a Lewis Boogie, any Lewis way The Lord, I do my little boogie woogie every day Makes you wanna stop and do the bop. It's called a Lewis Boogie. Lewis way, Lord, I do my little boogie woogie every day. state, north and south, not very far apart from each other and all that, but, right. they, but, but those uh, different sounds have uh, evolved. Is Zydeco surviving? Oh, I think it's thriving, actually. It I think it's emerging into new sounds. It's adding, a, you know, it's always kind of accrued from the old Creole forms, uh, blues and obviously French music. It's got the Afro-Caribbean rhythms, and then people have added in over the years rhythm and blues, soul and <laughs> now hip-hop. I mean, you have all all the levels of the most traditional to the most contemporary, so Zydeco is. But when we put this together, the idea was, uh, let's get two keyboard artists from Louisiana. Uh, let's make the, the linking factor blues boogie, because both of them are upbeat blues. I sort of see blues as a universal solvent in music. Mm -hmm. 
And, and then let's deal with, you know, North and South Louisiana, a white guy on the piano, the famous Jerry Lee Lewis, and then the Afro-Creole man from Southern Louisiana, Clifton Chenier. And, uh, you know, they're both kind of slightly bawdy songs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so it sounded good together to me to be able to, so you can say all that about geography and culture, and you can listen to style. And so hopefully you're entertained, but you learn a little something. We're going to talk about more about the blues a little bit later, because... You do me a big favor if you can explain to me in a way that I can understand exactly what the blues is. Okay. okay. Well, we had a guy one time who had written a book, claimed to be an expert in the blues, and I was more confused after he was done. But that's another that's another <laughs> story. All right. Uh, but let me ask you about American music in general. I, I know if you talk about music, it's like talking about food. You say, well, that's all kind of roots, all kind of cultures, all kind of influences. But those aside, when did or what was a first identifiable American music sound, that if people would look back at it one day from around the world and say, that's American music. <laughs> well, if you're into classical music, I mean, they would argue William Billings of Boston was showing, you know, new ways of uh, creating classical forms. I think that the, the American music that really uh, gets recognized is because when the record industry finally gets going, all of a sudden, you've got uh, the African-American music is called race music, and it's sold under that label. You have old-time country, and that's called hillbilly music. And popular music included jazz. Uh, you know, And so you could have all those things suddenly on records, which begins in the early 20s, late teens. And, and, then, you, and then you have radio. So it then gets sent everywhere around the country. So people became a conscious became conscious of American music legacy when they could all hear it and talk about it and listen to it. And uh, as I've often said, uh, you don't have to go to the same bingo parlor to hear somebody else's music. Uh, if you're black, you can hear the Grand Old Opry and you can hear the stories. Uh, if you're white, you can tune into to a, a KLC out of uh, Nashville and other stations and you can hear blues and gospel. And so the, the media helped commingle uh, the sounds. Uh, Ray Charles told me... Uh, Reverend Green told me how much they lo loved the Grand Old Opry because of the stories, you know. And, and uh, Ray Charles, of course, uh, had big hits in country music. Um, and I, many country artists, you know, play basically forms of blues or throw blues licks in there. So to, to really answer your question, I'd have to say it gets, when it gets known in early media is when people begin to make those comments. Before that, even I mean, classical music disseminates in a very different way. I mean, you know, scores and uh, per specialized performances for the intelligentsia. But this is all oral tradition music that sure. changes the world. Isn't it true that once music was <clears throat> recorded, that it also had the effect of shaping the music a little bit? That's what I hear about jazz. Mm -hmm. uh, like sure. when, the, when Livery Stable Blues was first recorded, uh, what Nickel Rock, that their actual sound was faster than, <laughs> than the record. Right. And right. people got used to hearing the record version, which slowed it down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there was that kind of thing where the recorded version sounded different than the band live. You, you still hear that comment on music uh, today, actually, I think. But what really happened was a compression of time because most of the 78s couldn't record much further than three minutes. And if you were in a blues club, sometimes blues narrations go on 45 minutes in a club, you know, and, and, and certainly in jazz, you have long form jazz and then you have jazz for dancing that would last more than three minutes. And so all the genres were compressed by that format. And so then people had to start thinking of this, this you know, this frozen performance that then could be put on radio or sold in stores or really both and, and something that would appeal to people. So it ends up in, you know, roughly three minutes. And of course, later in life, we got the LPs and CDs and everything else. But I wonder if Nick LaRocca, <clears throat> after he became famous and if his, he played with his band somewhere live, if people mm -hmm. said, well, this sounds different. You're playing, <laughs> it, you're playing it faster than what we've heard. You know, I, I, I think, like I said, I think big time rock and hip hop bands of today are saying, hey, did, so, he, so. he dropped that line. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know about Nick LaRocca in particular. I mean, you know, and his situation is is interesting in that, you know, they had the wherewithal and the cash to get up to near Philadelphia where they recorded initially, whereas a lot of the local bands, including, you know, pe beloved people in the in our history, uh, bands that included uh, uh, King Oliver and, and Bechet and Louis Armstrong, at that moment, they were not, uh, you know, traveling somewhere to make something happen. So so the Nicola Rocca band gets there first, but the legacy of jazz is really more in some of these 
more enduring figures that go on later. Uh, locally, people know Nick, Nick LaRocca. Nationally, not so much. Yeah, but no. They all know Armstrong and Bechet and yeah. King Oliver and others. We hear about how influenced the Beatles were by American <laughs> music. Yeah. What was it about American music that influenced them? Well, I think they really liked, uh, if, if you were to break it down, the Stones really... Rolling Stones really uh, gravitated towards blues, and the Beatles really loved country and some blues. I mean, they did rockabilly. Carl Perkins played with them at one point, and then they covered Carl Perkins songs, you know, like Honey Don't and that kind of thing. So th they seemed to like the sort of showy country songs, uh, but then they liked basic rock and roll, which had blues progressions. And then, of course, ultimately, they, they dipped into the British music hall tradition and created all these fabulous, you know, fantasies of the 60s and 70s that had really never been heard quite that way before. So, uh, but they were certainly in it. I, I think the Stones are generally considered more uh, carriers forward of American style. And then you had all these British rock bands, which I used to call the hair bands. <laughs> and, and to me, I did not like their versions of Muddy Waters and Howlin' and Wolf so much. When I worked in radio in Philly years ago, the, the, you know, the people in our advertising said, play Foghat, play 10 years after. I'd say, now why would I play them when I can play Muddy Waters and Howlin' and Wolf's originals? They said, better sales. And I'd say, uh-uh, we got the kids living, are loving all the old African-American artists too, so... But yeah, it's, it's, it's intriguing. The Beatles are continually in, intriguing, and the catalog's amazing. And they were only together for a few years, but I think everybody who lived through that time and after go back to it. Well, think about our Irma Thomas's time is on my side, that the Beatles uh -huh. recorded that. Yeah, right. When, and that's, that's where the Stones uh, come in, and they have the huge hit. And, uh, you know, she's, she's somewhat eclipsed. But, you know, Irma has so many great songs, and she made so many fine recordings. And you know, obviously, she's a great hero heroine, I should say, to us here. And while I think you know she has some chagrin over the Rolling Stones, in the end, her career is remarkable. And you know, she's beloved by thoughtful people globally who know soul music and blues and music of the heart. So uh, you know, you can't, you can't gauge your success entirely by how many records you sell. Uh, there's Fats Domino; she's right up there with Elvis Presley and and, uh, you know, many others uh, in record sales. But I don't think he ever was that focused on his career. He always just would go in and do his gig. Yeah. <laughs> so, Well, if I was a recording artist and I recorded a record <laughs> and, and the Rolling Stones would do it, yeah. I'd have no chagrin at all. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, I think she was just upset that she'd recorded hers and she thought hers should be out there being heard by as many people as the Stones. But, yeah. you know, unless you got the promotion and you're in a big music Which center. Which doesn't, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look at it this way. I mean, New Orleans did get an awful lot of jazz music onto records. And a lot, uh, but a lot of the artists left and went went, went to the West Coast or New York, New York, Chicago. I mean, you know, they went, Jelly Roll and Kid Ory go out West and Armstrong goes up to Chicago and ultimately many land in New York towns with big music industries. And now tourists come here for traditional jazz and other forms, uh, but it's not totally supported by natives all the time. So these are the ironies of life. I always wonder, like, people who like jazz around the world, they hear songs like Basin Street Blues, mm -hmm. and they come to New Orleans and they say, man, take me to Basin Street. All right? <laughs> Ain't nothing there, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and there really aren't that many jazz landmarks. I mean, uh, you know, there's Armstrong Park, but I, I don't think... I, his home doesn't exist any, any right, anymore. Right. Yeah, yeah and, and also the place that he played over there uh, on Rampart, I guess, collapsed uh, after the last hurricane. Uh, and, yeah. you know, and, but, but, I mean, there are places. I mean, Jelly Roll Morton lived uh, in a locality that, that... I mean, I do think New Orleans could do better uh, to take care of some of the homes of the historic people. I like what they're doing uh, with the Dew Drop In now. I mean, it's not... That's great, yeah. It, it'll never be the same, but it, it, it looks that way from the outside, um, you know. But in its heyday, the history, I mean, as you know, in segregation, it was a place for guys like Ray Charles to stay. And yeah, there was, a, you know, a barbershop, a grocery store, sure. a nightclub. There was, you know, crossover gay performance. Uh, there, I think they had a little newspaper and a post office. I mean, but that was a, a response to the life. But, you know, I think the idea that it's now a hotel with a lot of the similar interiors or continued, it's much better than having the wrecking ball hit it, which yeah, all, all too often is what happens on our city. And I, I, I'm sorry to see that. I think, I think Memphis has done more with less. Yeah. You know, we have more. 
in terms of homes of, of, of artists in neighborhoods? Yeah, the, um, you ever go to Beale Street? The Beale Street in Memphis? Uh-huh, sure. Yeah. Maybe I missed something. Okay? <laughs> but I've heard about it, and, and <clears throat> there wasn't that much, you know? There was a, right. Yeah. Well, a fair amount is gone. Yeah. Uh, and well, but, but they refer to it as, this is Memphis's French Quarter. Uh-huh. It ain't that. It's not that at all, yeah. you know? Well, you know, I mean, let's face it. Um, you know, Me- Memphis is uh, an Anglo-American, African-American city. It doesn't have the Francité yeah. and the Caribbean uh, influences in the mix. Um, but I think it is fascinating to go to Sun Records, which is, you know, just a little pile of bricks, but you think of all the music that was made in there, and, and it's incredible. But I, I think, you know, in the search for music history, the first best thing you've got are recordings. Uh, I think the locations are less significant unless the neighborhood texture is intact. But it's meaningful to people to go to these spaces, and, and I think it's a better kind of cultural tourism you know, it's a way to say, you know, don't just go down and get a hand grenade on Bourbon Street. Go out and, you know, visit Jelly Roll's house or yeah. wherever you're going to go. So so I, I think it's I think it's a good approach to cultural tourism sure. and, and a, a way to remember artists. People appreciate that the Professor Longhair uh, house is was a coming along. There was a play that came out a few years ago. I think it was called Million Dollar Quartet. Uh-huh. And it was about the night at Sun Records. When, right. Yeah, I don't know if it was coincidence or not, but Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and Johnny Cash and um, Price uh, uh, were all there. Uh-huh. I mean, they all have they all have to come by, and they all right. sang together and all of that. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. Uh, okay. okay, let's talk about jazz. Okay. But first, let me tell the people that we, uh, we're, um, we're talking about the, the program with Nick Spitzer, who does a program, American Roots, which you haven't heard it, you should hear it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a great program. It's a very important program to the... Uh, the culture. Um, what was it in New Orleans that influenced jazz? Well, it's it's a wide range of things. Uh, I mean, I think the the West African through the Caribbean influence uh, in terms of approaches to percussion and rhythm are powerful, uh, and and turning it into a cup, probably you know public performances where there's dancing and things that become Congo Square and Second Line uh, much later. Um, and then there's the European influence where you have, um, you know, uh, Sousa marches. Um, you've got uh, all, all manner of popular songs. Uh, and you could throw in gospel music and blues. And as most uh, uh, jazz people would say, it took all those kinds of musics and just jazzed them up. Mm-hmm. But which they meant they improvised. Um, they made different kinds of arrangements. They did that sort of heterophonic thing you hear in jazz where people are continually soloing through melodies. Um, but but I think clearly being here in the Caribbean, being tied to Francité, uh, being separated from the rest of English-speaking America, uh, having a long history of Jean-Livre de Colour, the free people of color, um, some of whom were highly educated to classical music, others whom uh, you know were learning in gospel churches uh, or hearing you know blues uh, in nearby places and then migrating here. Um, all the, all the pieces were in place for uh, what you know I consider the ultimate great American creolization, which is jazz emerging here with those you know Afro Euro and Caribbean elements of people, and uh, you know despite se- separations and segregations, uh, places where people could get together early Congo Square, and there's the question of how much that influences the beginning of jazz as public performance, um, and then you know all these clubs and obviously carnival. Uh, where there's a chance for people to play in public. And you begin to get the processions. You know, there's a long history of processions uh, in Mediterranean Europe for the dead. And we, the, you know, some of the early uh, second lines were, you know, the police uh, benevolent societies. But at the same time, there's a long history in West Africa of processions remembering, you know, the holy figure, the king, the queen, uh, somebody important, somebody who's passed away. And so you're again. You're having these collisions of Afro and Euro culture um, that are fairly uh, uninhibited compared to the, you know, the the South above us, the South to the North mm-hmm. of us. And so I, I think it, you know, it, it becomes the music identified from here. And then slowly people leave to go elsewhere to make careers out of it. But you know, to this day, you know, you can go out and hear a second line in most time, sometime between Labor Day and and maybe. Uh, I don't know, into May or June, and if somebody dies in the hot summer too, 
so there's there's a vibrancy here and a lot of great traditionalists who play it still, whether it's uh, Michael White or, or, you know, Treme or or all the many brass bands that have morphed it into soul, R&B, and hip-hop. So it is our great enduring music from here. And I, I mean, I think it's really important in the history of American life and, and in the world, you know, kind of freedom uh, in, in collision of cultures. And now it's all institutions. I mean, everybody knows about jazz now. Mm-hmm, and so that's right. We, we, you know, we, uh, we don't need to work. The, um, well, the jazz museum's done a lot of good um, uh, down, you know, right here in New Orleans. Uh, I think, obviously, jazz is popular all over the world. Michael White laments the fact that more young people aren't taking up traditional jazz and, and he said it's become a global music where people all over the world play it, his, oh. his, his style, his interest. Um, but it's not as strong here. But I always say to him, look, Michael, the second lines are there. You know, there's a lot of great players, and, you know, you can only do so much in one place. And the world loves it so much that there it is. Well, I've always heard that the one problem with jazz as far as, like, expanding its market is that there's no lyrics. It's uh, an interesting idea. Yeah. I think there's truth to that. I mean, when jazz was strong as dance music, uh, whether it had lyrics or not, you could draw, uh, you know, an audience to dance. But by the time you get to the late 40s, early 50s, and with, you know, the bebop era and cool jazz, a lot of that was not jazz or was not uh, dance-oriented. Um, and it's still beautiful music, in my opinion. But by then, I mean, you know, the swing era had taken over, uh, and that was not satisfying to a lot of our New Orleans players and, and deep traditionalists. Uh, so... You know, these things change over time, but we have the recordings. You know, once we have recordings, we can go, you know, as far back as well. If you want cylinders, we can go back into the uh, late 1800s. But would you you agree, though, that Louis Armstrong is the greatest jazz figure from New Orleans? Yes. I I had to run down my quick list. I put Jelly Roll maybe number two, Bechet three, King Oliver. I mean, if I'm going to, you know, but clearly in terms of global impact. Uh, there's nobody at his level. Do you think Louis Prima was influenced by Armstrong? You know, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, I'm sure. It? Yeah, I mean, he 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 did acknowledge him, uh, and sure. I mean, the two Louis. Um, but they both had that gravelly voice, right, singing right, style. Right. Yeah. I mean, of course, Louis Prima comes along a little later. I think you know by then Armstrong has uh, moved on from here, but still heard. Uh, I mean, I think Louis Prima was generally influenced by the blues, uh, influenced by Armstrong, uh, influenced by carnival humor. Uh, and, you know, he got kind of rejected in New York because uh, Benny Goodman didn't want too much competition. And uh, he couldn't make it as a roots rock and roller because Sicilians weren't getting those gigs for the uh-huh. most part. Um, but Vegas was the perfect place for him, you know, where he could combine a highfalutin and the gamblers and everybody and do what he wanted and... I mean, I, I think Louis Prima is he's just one of my absolute favorites, and I, I love him. Uh, you know, my, when I was a kid uh, growing up in New England, my father made fun of him and said, oh, he was my father was a classical cellist. And, and I, I kind of went along with that till I moved back to Louisiana uh, for the third time, and I was at a Mardi Gras at Orpheus when uh, they were throwing Louis Prima doubloons. And I looked down at it and I kind of picked it up, and an older African-American man says, what's the matter there, boy? You don't you want that Louis Prima doubloon? And I said, ah, you can have it. I said, he said, you don't like him? I said, well, and he says, you, man, you need to listen to him again. Yeah. And I did. And he was right. And I wish I had the doubloon. I became <laughs> a Louis Prima fan when he died. Mm. Okay, because I'd heard about him all my life, but, then, uh, but never really paid attention. You didn't see him on the Ed Sullivan show? Uh, no. But, so uh, that's where my father made fun of him. What? The, on the Ed Sullivan show in the 50s. With no, Smith if he would have, I probably wouldn't have even watched him, okay? Yeah. But the... Uh, but when he died, all the news shows talked about him, and they had, you know, clips from his song and all that. I thought that's really good stuff, okay. And you know, and mixing in uh, the the Italian and all that, you know, and all mm-hmm. that. I mean, it's really, it's really good. So, oh, I agree. Fun. It's funny. It's upbeat. Yeah. It's well played. I mean, I did get to interview both Keely Smith and Sam Butera of those twelve hundred interviews. Keely out at her place in Palm Springs, and she's passed, and Sam passed. Recently, too, Sam in town, and uh, I, I think Sam Butera is just a genius on sax. And you know, he grows up in Treme, and he talks lamentingly about how when segregation was enforced, that all of the kids that he used to do sleepovers with, mm. namely black kids, were now having to go to different schools than him. But he he remembered the the red gravy sandwiches being served across mm. the cultural lines and everything else. And uh, 
I think Sam Butera is one of the great swing and saxophone yeah. players. And Louis, Louis was a great, you know, wild sort of vaudevillian of sorts. And there's Keely Smith, sort of the ice queen. I mean, those are amazing shows. And I, the ones that my dad made fun of, I look at them now and I go, this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, we know, I guess you've heard this. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's true. Like, when he was married to Keely Smith, and Keely Smith would be teasing him mm. during the shows. Right. But that influenced Sonny and Cher. You know, I hadn't heard that, but it yeah. wouldn't surprise yeah. me. Because uh, they're the same sort of thing, okay? That, yeah. that uh, Sonny would be kind of like the, more of the lovable buffoon, and she kind of right. put him down and all of that. You know, right. So. Yeah, yeah. It's an old, I think it's an old kind of vaudeville thing. Yeah. Okay. Let's get to the blues here. Okay. Let's get down here. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, in some words, it's a color, I suppose. Um, you know, it, I think it takes its name um, from, uh, you know, they talk about blue devils and red uh, devils in, in late medieval into the Enlightenment psychology in England. Uh, and I think that probably English planters uh, on the American eastern seaboard and maybe down in further south um, were looking at, you know, workers who were enslaved and quite likely despondent and very unhappy uh, and especially during long, hot work hours and everything else. And so they would refer to people as having blues. And it's, I just assume that it's an old sort of, we, we wouldn't call it a medical term today, but it was before. before. That's, that's what I get from reading a little bit of the history. But then what is the blues as music? Well, uh, it's narrative usually. Uh, it can both praise or damn uh, the boss, uh, more like damning the boss, praise or damn uh, the girlfriend or the boyfriend. Uh, uh, it can talk about a good life and how you, you know, things are fine. It can also talk about how I got to get on the road to find something better. I mean, it's very, it covers a lot of different themes. The scale of the blues uh, is not unlike the scale of the call to prayer in Islam. And I think the reason is that lots of Islamic uh, people uh, migrated across Central Africa to West Africa and were themselves slavers and other kinds of business operators. Uh, and, and as a result, there was some of that in the sound system. If next, listen to the call to, to prayer sometime and listen to the blues scale, and you'll find them almost virtually in sync. So there's, a, there's complication in the blues. But as it becomes this song form, probably out of field hollers, and out of a complaint where you're not going to complain directly to the power of the bee, but you're sharing it in a field or you're sharing it at a juke joint, it, it becomes a music that gives people the freedom to express pain, to enjoy themselves, to dance, and it becomes really a wide-ranging music. And, and look at the history in American life. The men at the bottom of the agrarian system in the South, the black men, who were the bottom, bottom, bottom on the social scale, end up being the main makers of music that travels north to Chicago, leads us to rhythm and blues and rock and roll, you could argue goes to Memphis as well, goes to all these places. And, and that music kind of changes the, the country and the world. Uh, and, and so I, I think of blues as having great magical powers. Now, jazz moves into the more sophisticated, cerebral, written music arrangements, even Jelly Roll, you know, he was famously wrote down the solos and scored everything. But to me, blues improvisation um, and that ability to express pain, uh, it's almost like predate psychotherapy, you know, to be able to sing about how sad you are makes you feel good. I mean, I, I feel that way mm-hmm. <laughs> when I hear blues sometimes. But, but it's, you know, it's a, a, an interesting and important American complex of life, not all good in the causes, but in the results, global, global impact again back to the Gulf South, back to the Delta more. Um, and it's certainly in jazz. So blues is important. When Hank Williams sang, I'm so, I'm so lonesome I can cry, was that not the blues? Yeah, I mean, you know, some people call country music the white man's well, blues. Well, yes, people yeah. say it's country music, but would it meet the criterion for being blues? I mean, he also sang uh, Lovesick Blues. Uh, yeah, yeah. So he had some songs with the blues title. It, it's not blues in the same sense of the uh, AAB, you know, line structure and a blues progression. Um, it, it has a beat that sounds like country music, um, but is, a, it, is it a narrative about uh, emotional pain and suffering? In that sense, I, th- I think it is blues. 
And those that band throws lots of blue notes into their improvs. But there are things where he actually is singing classic blues forms. And so, you know. Okay. Well, we have a, a clip. Oh, yeah. About the blues. Uh, tell us about it. This is the one with Nina Simone. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Nina Simone was in that generation of singers um, that came after the classic blues ladies uh, in the 1920s and 30s, like Bessie Smith and um, Mamie Smith and Ma Rainey. And, and, and she didn't really want to be identified with what she saw as the old music. She wasn't going to be an urbane sophisticate. She was a great classical pianist um, and you know, went into popular music because she couldn't get into the big musical institute in Philly. Um, but in talking to her, I, I asked her about blues because uh, she did sing one of the classics. And, well, here's what she had to say. The blues are very important. I don't like blues because it makes me blue. But uh, when I sing Sugar in My Bowl, and the audience loves it. Bessie Smith, baby. What do you love about that song? Oh my goodness, man, it's talking about sex and love. <laughs> I want a little sugar in my bowl. I want a little sweetness down in my soul I could stand some loving oh so bad I feel so funny I feel so sad Where are you living now? I live in the south of France Et tu parles français tous les jours, eh? Là-bas? Oui, vous parlez français Anti-branche, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she, that, that was on the occasion of her last tour um, in the U.S. Um, in the early 2000s, and uh, you know, I'd always heard that she was sort of down on blues, but you know, she she was all commanding, and she'd done that old classic song, and so it was a, a good entree. I also found that, as with Fats Domino, if you switch to some form of French, uh, suddenly she opened up. Uh, she'd lived there for a very long time. And, um, somewhat embittered on her in her life towards the southern U.S., and so this was a big deal for her to come back. And but then you know that, that nasty laugh, <laughs> I laugh every time I hear it. But that's blues. Sure. But that's kind of classic blues turned into kind of a, you know, '50s era '50s era jazz arrangement. Um, but well, we mentioned it, the yeah. Hank Williams a while ago. So let's talk about country. Sure. Um, I guess this is true of all forms of music that they changed during the time. Okay, mm-hmm. you know there was the original country with, with with some guy on the banjo, and then after the war, when they started having the, the steel guitar uh, more and more in it, and it's just kind of a, an evolutionary process. And then there was a in the seventies when they developed something called the Nashville sound, which had violins in it and all of that. Mm-hmm. But is there still kind of a a thing there that you say is country? Well, I mean, if, if you go to parts of Appalachia and parts of uh, the Dakotas and Montana and rural areas, there's a lot of people still playing banjos and, and fiddles and doing what they now call old-time music. I mean, there's bands around New Orleans like that. As far as the evolution of it, yeah, sure, it starts gets, getting mingled with jazz, actually over in uh, Fort Worth, uh, Dallas area, Bob Wales and the Texas Playboys. Um, listened to New Orleans radio stations to hear jazz, and so they created Western Swing. That's a music we play a lot of because it's a nice, you know, for for the jazz followers, they go, oh, I don't know they did that. Uh-huh. And for the country followers, some of them go, oh, I don't know they mm-hmm. did that. And so you, you lead your country followers towards New Orleans jazz and you lead your New Orleans and other jazz people back to country. And that's one of the things we try to do on Roots is help introduce people in new ways to music that's sort of enduring. But, yeah, I mean, uh, we don't go with the contemporary pop Nashville for the most part. Uh, that doesn't mean I haven't enjoyed my time in Tootsie's Orchid Lounge, just, you know, uh, Roberts in Nashville, one of the great little dance hall bars, and, and loving all that music over the years. I mean, Jerry Lee, a lot of his great country songs, you know. But um, I think it's gotten so pop-oriented that it's it's not as recognizable, and with a few exceptions, uh, I'm not as interested. In, but we do play a lot of kind of classic country, um, as well as the more traditional-sounding country. And, uh, you know, now, of course, the interesting thing is there's a lot of black artists, too. There's soul countries that have been evolving, which is kind of fascinating. And then, again, in, in, in country music, they, you know, there's blues elements all the time. 
you know, Fats Domino had a couple good country songs, and uh, Toussaint was a you know fan of country. He and Willie Nelson were good buddies. So, you know, it's it's an interesting reality what countries. But I think all these musics as they emerge and become more and more popular also start to, on one level, water down, but on another level, try new mixes with other things. I think you're right, though. I think that's a problem of it kind of losing a little bit of its identity. One thing it has, though, I guess all music has it too, is like the roadshow guys, like Garth Brooks, mm-hmm. okay, who have their they're their own thing, okay, right? They have their own and Hank Williams Jr. They have their own thing, you know, when they go and they draw big crowds, you know, like I got friends in low places. That's a great. That's a, that's, that's a <laughs> oh good yeah, song. there's some really good songs out there, and and I think in country music, there's always been these wonderful sort of double entendres and odd little turnarounds and. You know, and, and then there's a there's a politics in country music, mostly conservative, not only, um, but you know sometimes those become anthemic songs, and you, whether you agree or disagree, I, I think you, you step back and you listen and you ask yourself, well, what did that really mean? I mean, I, I thought Hank Williams Senior, which I, is to me the real Hank Williams, I mean, I think he was just singing out of his heart, and and those are incredible songs and an incredible band. Junior's much more political, um, and uh, so some people like that. Some don't. I tend to like not like the politics as much as I like the music. Sure, absolutely. The, um, yeah, I think it's been important for Junior to develop his own style. Right. Uh, like he wouldn't sing "You're Cheating Hard." Okay. I mean, he wants to develop right uh, uh, his own thing and all that. No, I think you know it's the whole thing of boy boys and dads often have to have their conflicts over who will be what now and. And then when you're in the spotlight, of course, it's all, uh, you know, made even bigger. And I think he did struggle for a very long time. I think he's a great singer, no question about mm-hmm. it. And he's written some some great songs. Um, you mentioned Willie Nelson. Uh, you, you think we ought to listen to Willie for a minute? Sure. Are, are you um, ready to do that? Yeah. Fortunately, Willie just walked in to the <laughs> studio, okay? So... Uh, you know, my dad played uh, rhythm guitar and fiddle and a little banjo mandolin, so he was one of those all-around musicians. But I noticed a lot of Django uh, in the guitar and in the, the fiddle or violin that he played. He had all those bar chord type things that he had learned and picked up. There was a lot of blues in the field out there. There was a lot of the field workers out there along with us that were singing all kind of music. You'd hear Spanish over here, you hear blues over here. And so we sort of uh, worked in a opera out there where we could hear all kinds of music. The Cotton Field is Opera House. Miles and miles of open space with music. Good sound system. (laughs) Let's talk about blues for a second. It's just so many things. I call it the universal solvent. You're absolutely right. I just, you know, it's... It cuts across all boundaries. Do you ever recall a point in your life when when you suddenly said, ah, here's the blues? When I first heard Milk Cow Blues, I heard it from Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. They weren't known as a blues band, but you could hear everything in there from big band to blues to country to Django Reinhardt, Stephanie Grappelli, all this in Bob Wills' Western Swing. So the blues were right there in the middle. He sang Milk Cow Blues or Tommy Duncan sang it every night, I guess, that they toured. Mm. Is that something we could ask you to sing? Sure. Well, I woke up this morning. Looked out my door I could tell my milk cow Could tell by the way she loaded So if you see my milk cow Won't you please drive her on Cause I ain't had no milk and butter Since my cow's been gone Gotta treat me right, baby, day by day. Get out your little prayer book, get out on your little knees and pray. Cause you're gonna need, cause you're gonna need my help someday. And you're going to be sorry that you treated me this way. That's his sister who recently, I guess a couple of years ago now, passed Bobby playing piano and Mickey Raphael and harmonica. It was just a little trio. But the thing I love about uh, Willie, and you hear a little of it, is that at one level, his, his father was an old-time country musician, 
But both he and his father listened to the radio and loved Django Reinhardt, the gypsy jazz man out of mm-hmm. the Hot Club of Paris. So they were globalists because of the radio, but they're cotton pickers down in Abbott, Texas. So you have old-time country, but you're hearing Django. And, and a lot of Willie's style of strumming and his solos are very much based on Django Reinhardt. And yet yeah. he grows up with the old-time country and everything else. And, and Willie's first band was a Czech band because in Central Texas, a lot of Czechs and... He just plunked out the chords when he was a teenager. So to me, Willie's one of the great American songsters. Uh, he loves New Orleans. It was always fun to see him here. And he was a friend of uh, former Sheriff Harry Lee. I mean, oh, who yeah. would have thought? I mean, you know, this guy who's always being busted for pot, and, he, and, he's, <laughs> and he's friends with the sheriff. Okay, You know what I really liked about that clip? Um, one is a song itself, and good and bluesy and moody. But you also know it's Willie Nelson. Mm-hmm. If that Willie Nelson distinctive sound, there's only one sound yeah. like that. You no, know? you're right. And I mean, the, the voice and the guitar, both very distinctive. That Django guitar with his improvisations and, and his voice, he just makes his voice work so well. Yeah, It's amazing how far he's gone and continued. And yeah. He's beloved. Well, he kind of went through this rebellious period. Like, you see pictures of him as a young man. Right. Coat and tie, hair comb, right, and all yeah, that. Going to Nashville. Yeah, he, re- he rebelled from Nashville, right. went to Austin, started right. the outlaw. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, movement became uglier, but but in a good kind of way. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, he needed a transition. Yeah, somehow. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and he completed it. And did did some great albums. Oh, amazing! Like, like Redheaded Stranger. And those, yeah. Oh, that's one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. That's brilliant. Well, I'll just say it, for one moment. I used to work at a country station in Austin when I was in grad school. I had been in underground radio in Philly, and now I'm in Austin. And I knew a lot of country, but, you know, I had to learn Texas country. But the armadillo would close at midnight, and all these guys, Waylon Jennings and Willie and Commander Cody, would come by because the local, the native Texans on the station were all working by the week. I was doing school, so I'd be there on a Friday or Saturday night, and they'd show up. And and one time Willie came, he was wearing a Nehru coat. I mean, you talk about <laughs> transitioning. And, and he looked a little strange. <laughs> and people told me he was... Let's shall we say experimenting with certain kinds of uh-huh. elixirs uh, that took him into a different zone, and he, uh, you know, but he went through that and kind of resettled in, in his Texas roots and lived a very lives a very productive life that's touched the whole world, and he's a remarkable. A remarkable American is how I would say it. And I love your comment about here's this big pot smoker, being, <laughs> you know, being buddies with the sheriff. But you know, nowadays. You know, there's arguments for freedom for people having access to all that stuff, whether it's Montana or Louisiana. So some of that seems like bygone days. I remember one night at the um, at the Bacchus Ball, Willie Nelson played, and then at one point Harry Lee came in and played too. I forget what he played. I guess he strummed on the guitar or something. Well, you know? they they sing that song together to "Here's All the." I can't remember the name. All the. Women I met, I've ever loved. Yeah, 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 that yeah. line I sticks in my mind. I'm yeah. not sure what the exact song title is, but yeah, they they got up and sort of became schmaltzy singers together on that one. Okay, well, I'm asking a couple of lightning round pieces because I don't want to wear you out here on, 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 on this interview. You got so. me wide awake now. Everyone. Okay, you know, okay, you know. Well, after the first one, Piglo. For lack of a better term, they're the music that, that, that I guess described as the big orchestra pieces. All right. Um, you know, what you'd find at a, at a symphony or the Broadway, okay. But like American big orchestra pieces. What would you think would be some of the really best ones? Well, I mean, I like Gershwin stuff. Yeah. I think there's some amazing fanfares and things like that. And speaking of fanfares, you know, I love fanfare for the common man. It's I'm a wonderful piece. I'm yeah. hitting the greatest. These are some of the greatest hits right now. Um you know, and, and I think there's interesting orchestral arrangements around jazz by people that sometimes play classical um, or, you know, go back and forth. And New Orleans is a town where people have done that pretty well. Um, you know, I, I really hadn't thought about the big brassy arrangements uh, as much. Um, I, you know, I, I know them when I hear them uh, sometimes backing up popular music and then other times uh, classical forms in, in their own right, uh, listening for them uh, you know, going to LPO and other places. But uh, I probably should play, play a little more American classical music on Roots. There's a lot of things I should do. I should play probably some more Cuban jazz. Um, but, you know, I think uh, you have to start looking for things you can make work in a show mix. And yeah. you can make a lot of classical pieces work 
if they're rel relatively shorter, the audience won't listen if they think they're getting something else to something too long. I, I grew up in New England, and my mother was obsessed with Charles Ives. So I grew up with a lot of Charles Ives, um, both the symphonic music and the kind of tone poems about about rivers and the moods in life and that sort of thing. Two that came to mind, I'm really a novice on this, okay, but like um, American in Paris and, mm -hmm. and Rhapsody in Blue. Sure. I mean, I mean, those are beautiful pieces. Oh, those okay. are amazing. They're just amazing works. I mean, they're in uh, the soundscape of uh, most anybody that listens to kind of American music in a, in a wide context. Are Broadway musicals <laughs> the music? Are, are they an American invention? I mean, I know there was always shows out there, but the kind right. of like... Well, I mean, you know, the, the English tradition uh, of shows and, and musical accompaniments and, you know, and, and all across Europe is, is, is certainly a predecessor. But it seems to me that show tunes, a la Broadway, and, and to, to some degree Hollywood, um, and, you know, as, and everything starts getting in the media, uh, where it's actually made or, you know, where, where it evolves from could be quite varied. Uh, there's, there's a lot of it that's distinctively American, in it, in arrangement, in language, uh, in references. Um, I don't play too much of that because I feel like audiences have a lot of access to that. Mm -hmm. I think it's harder for them to find uh, Zydeco, uh, harder to find New Orleans traditional jazz, though not terribly hard, harder to find, you know, Tex-Mex music, easier to find, you know, the big Broadway shows and Hollywood film soundtracks. But that said, there's some riveting soundtracks and important music in all in all those places. I just feel like other other formats and other other stations can can, can do that. I, they're not counting on having unknown artists being being yeah. heard. But maybe they want to hear what you have to say about it. You know? so <laughs> it, 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 they it, might. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, we I know we have a lot of listeners who are jazz educators, jazz musicians, and uh, classical players. And and you know, I think there's a lot of respect has grown for what I call the vernacular, uh, you know, deep culture in American life, uh, whether it's French Louisiana or the Mississippi blues, uh, early rock and roll, um, got certainly gospel music in the churches. And uh, I, I think anybody that wants to be an educated American in a broad sense really needs to know some of the folk forms and traditional vernac what I call vernacular forms that are not based in, you know, the, the academy uh, or the concert hall um, as a support system, but just grew out of oral tradition and continuity of cultures. Okay, leaping totally in a different direction. <laughs> Can Cajun music survive? Cajun music has survived. I mean, it, it's. I mean, Cajun and Zydeco are both, uh, I think, pretty vibrant forms. Um, there are people who wish more of the language of Cajun and Zydeco was in French. Certainly, the older people felt that way, and now the new educators with immersion. Uh, like that, and there's a fair amount of that, and uh, the public radio station Lafayette KRVS, which, you know, 30 years ago played classical and news, and that was it. Now is probably at least a third in French, en français. You know, they have morning show, and uh, a lot of what they play, they play Cajun and Zydeco, and I think that's propelled it. Uh, the music's on the radio in Houston, where there's a lot of Cajuns and Creoles. It's on the radio in San Francisco, or similar situation. And and it, it too, has become kind of a global music, not just tours to France, but around the world for, for both Cajun and Zydeco. Uh, and so people can have their lives. They don't, you know, used to be it might be a welder all week and then on the weekend play the accordion. Uh, nowadays, you know, great accordion players have bands and they tour constantly and they make a living with records. And yes, local dance halls, but also tours across the U.S. to go to festivals in Europe and elsewhere. I thought some of the, and believe me, my sentiment is with Cajun music, but some of those early recordings were pretty strenuous to listen to. <laughs> I mean, like like the original Alain uh, Lafayette and the, uh, uh -huh. was it uh, the Bros, the Thucky and all that. But anyway, but it didn't have a good recording thing, you know, right, and they weren't right. what you call great singers, and it, it was kind of, well, they were adequate for dance hall performances. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, part, the recording thing you can't put on them because it just was the deal, and and it was harder for the majors didn't always do a good good a job in the you know out in the what do they say the hustings as they might have done uh, you know near Philadelphia or New York or wherever. Um, but I think there were you know I mean I love Ira Lejeune stuff and it, you know these these things may be acquired tastes, uh, um, but. You know, that's just the nature of it. Um, clearly, Cajun's been influenced by country a lot now, and there's great Cajun steel guitar players. Um, 
but at the same time, I think there's the sort of the acoustic traditionalists, uh, you know, that you think of the band Beausoleil, known to many people. Uh, and similarly, Zydeco, you got the kind of traditionalists who tend to go with the, um, the button accordion rather than the piano accordion and play more older songs in French, more, more two-steps and some waltzes and some blues. But there's a lot of layers. It's complicated. And, and you know, there's different kinds of festivals, different kinds of clubs, different record companies and markets that allow all these things to kind of coexist. I remember one year at the Jazz Fest, Beausoleil was going to play, and the um, this announcer, I think it was from one of the country radio stations, mm. goes out and says, all right, everybody, y'all ready for some coon-ass music? Oh, God. You know, here's one of the, <laughs> here's one of the great coon-ass <clears throat> um, bands, Beausoleil. Anyway. What did Michael Ducey say? Well, he walked out very coolly. Oh, yeah. Okay. He's the fit, lead fiddle, we should yeah. say, and band leader. And he says, this is not coon-ass. This is Acadian music, you know. And then they thought, pop up, play, and all that. That, that, that guy. Oh. Well, this uh, happens sometimes when things get popular. And, you know, uh, Jazz Fest could, could use probably a little more focus on cultural content by, in introducing groups. But, you know, a, a stage manager walks up and just says his thing or some lo- a celebrity. And it, 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 I think it's always better if you have somebody that knows what they're talking about and understands the sensitivities and still keep it short. You know, and I think that's possible to do. Okay, so here we go back with our threatening kind of quick comment section. Okay, rap and hip hop. Uh-huh. What are the origins of that? Well, I mean, I think that they're generally out there in African American music. If you listen to Jubilee from the '30s, which is a gospel form where uh, usually the, the the lead singer sounds like a preacher saying, you know, don't listen to the backbiters, don't listen to the liars, don't listen to this and that. The, there is a sort of a declarative style about what's the proper way to live. And I love that old Jubilee stuff. Um, and I think some of that declarative style finds its way into blues and R&B. And then I think, you know, by the late 70s, early 80s, it makes its way into rap, literally, you know, laying down, um, you know, some talk that's going to be, needs to be heard. And so then rap picks up the politics, it picks up uh, race relations, it picks up male-female relations, it picks up everything. Um, But I I think it does have roots in the role in black music in general in narrating social commentaries, whether, you know, could be blues, could be gospel, could be this form I'm talking about, Jubilee. Uh, And I think it extends that and... uh, I don't think it would exist without those forms of blues and gospel, especially before it. Um, for me, uh, I you know, unless I really know the song, I have to read the lyrics the first go around. Uh-huh. Um, the guys are going fast, mostly guys, not only, um, and there's a lot of slang. Um, I tr- I count on my kids <laughs> to tell me their favorites, um, but there's that, and then you know, hip hop is sort of a broader lifestyle that is inclusive of rap and has all kinds of music in it and strikes me as pretty varied and interesting. Of course, we got Big Frida here in town as sort of the the leading uh, queen protagonist of of hip-hop. But, you know, I think right now, I mean, this stuff, rap's been around for almost 50 years now, and so you get a situation where you have men in their, you know, in their... 50s and 60s lamenting the good old days in rap uh-huh. <laughs> while there's all kinds of new rap coming out. So I think music just keeps changing and people are more aware of different kinds than they ever were before. So, um, But again, with, with rap, um, we don't play a lot on Roots. We do a little here and there where we make the connections that I talked about, but my feeling is it's it's very available on radio. Mm-hmm. So I don't and hip-hop would be... Well, hip-hop is a variety of forms, uh, usually having rap within it, and uh, it also seems to lend itself more in the direction of dance and body moving. Um, so uh, both both rap and hip-hop have outlets in New Orleans and around the country on many, many stations. Where I can make it fit um, something in blues or gospel or some forms of jazz, I, that's where I do it. But I don't feel the need to do that more than to sort of show those connections a little bit once in a while. These are choices you're going to make working in, you know, in public radio and doing what we're doing. I mean, I can't play country all the time either, <laughs> you know, or Cajun or anything. You try and mix it up. Clearly, though, we tend to play a lot of Gulf South music. I call our format Gulf South by Southwest, and I would add to it probably the Caribbean. Um, and we tend that means you're going to play jazz. 
Uh, you're going to play reggae. You're going to play blues. You're going to play country, soul, you know, uh, gospel. And then the local regional music's Cajun, Zydeco, uh, rockabilly, to go up to Memphis. So so we, we kind of limit the palette, and yet it's very eclectic compared to commercial radio formats. So on one level, we like to be expansive, and another, we got to find ways to make all these things fit together. And the word, the word segue, one follows the, ne- the thing. Sonically, mood-wise, and lyrically, you find ways to put it together. And my motto is every third song should be at least something someone in the audience finds interesting, familiar, and entertaining. And so maybe the thing next to it on the other side of it, they'll like. Like with, with Jerry Lee, they might not know Clifton, but if you put Clifton and Jerry Lee together, sure. you go, oh, and vice versa. If you're in a Zydeco head and say, you know, I hadn't heard old Jerry Lee singing that song about New Orleans. You know, you, somebody, somebody suddenly comes and says, okay, I may not be something I go for, but I'll trust uh, American Roots to give me, give me a, another sonic vision of, of life, in, life in America. Have you seen the Hamilton? Uh, I have not seen Hamilton, actually. I'm one of the few people who probably hasn't. I tried to get tickets when I was in New York a couple of months ago, and it was sold out yeah. <laughs> every day. Well, it seems like you, of all people, I know, see Hamilton. I know, the whole well, hip-hop Well, so, so many of my friends have seen it and told me, and I've, of course I've heard the songs, uh, but yeah, I do need to go. I'll okay. get right out and do that. Okay. <laughs> Suppose the night you go home, and you're really tired, and you just want to relax. You're tired from having to do this and everything else, and you just want to put... I assume you still have LPs somewhere or, 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 still, a, C, still, or a CD. You? Well, I still have about uh, 2,500 LPs, and because of Roots, I have about, jeez, uh, I have about 15,000 CDs. Okay, well, what's going to be a tough <laughs> question They're not answer. all at my house. Okay, but you just wanted to relax. <coughs> you picked out an LP. What would you want to hear? Well, I, it, it's usually jazz. And, and if I'm in a uh, spiritualist mode, I want to hear John Coltrane. I still love the classic work. I love Supreme. I just think it's one of the most beautiful pieces of spiritual, secular jazz, in a sense, uh, for me. Um, you know, uh, if, if I want to feel like mellow after a long day's work, I, I, like, I like what Art Blakey does uh, with the tune Work Song. And he was a drummer, and he, he mm. mentored the Marsalises and many others. So, so it's a slow tune. It has a bluesy feel to it. So jazz, I like. I, I, I'm not as into lots of lyrics after a day of teaching and words. Uh, I, you know, I'm just going to chill out and uh, you know mix something <laughs> yeah. and listen to some kind of jazz, probably. Yeah. So I got I got Art Blakey and Coltrane. Yeah. And I didn't get to New Orleans on that. I do like a lot of great New Orleans music. I do like all the stuff Michael White's done over the years. I think it's brilliantly played and researched. So you know, I often listen to some of his blues and other tunes, uh, some of the upbeat uh, things as well. But, you know, I, it's time to chill, so I'm, And, and that's it still seems like New Orleans is getting more generations coming along. It's not dying out at all. You know? No, I, I feel that to be true. I think that's true. I mean, I think uh, Michael and some of the more traditionalists feel there's not enough traditional jazz uh, being learned, uh, to which I say, well, Noka, why don't you guys start doing that a little more? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but but I think there there are many variations of jazz being played. And it's still a town where you can walk in the streets, um, you know, in, in respecting uh, and celebrating a person that's passed or respecting Mother's Day or, you know, your social aid and pleasure club. And I think that's pretty amazing. You know, New Yorkers pay $30 to get into, uh, you know, just jazz down the village. And there's a two drink minimum. You can go out on a second line and, you know, buy a beer for $3 and walk for five hours. You know, maybe buy a couple more beers if you need to get all, all the miles in. But I, I think that's still a remarkable thing and very important for the city's sense of itself. And I think it's important in cultural terms to remind Americans that this is a city that, that jazz evolves in and still holds, holds close in various ways uh, to its heart and soul. And... Two institutions that I think are important, having preserved all that. One is a jazz fest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, no, I would agree. Because it gives all these people a stage to hear these different people. I mean, you know, to, to see the new Leviathan Orchestra. Right, kind of thing, sure. You know, that, that people wouldn't see. And the other, of course, is Mardi Gras. The, the, for, for the same thing that you're talking about, you know, yeah. hearing this music out on the streets. Oh, uh, something about it. <laughs> yeah. and, all, and all the high school marching bands coming down the street. And, and you know, as well as the, you know, the kind of, Brass bands, some some marching, some up on somebody's 
uh, somebody's float. Um, I, I would like to see Jazz Fest find ways to have more local people attending. I think it's becoming very East Coast, West Coast. Um, I do what they do in New Mexico. I think I give everybody, like if you want to go to a museum in New Mexico and you have a New Mexico driver's license, it's always half price for, for state natives. Now, that's a little bit clumsy, but I, I feel like everybody here should get a little discount. And, and you know, if it's somebody's coming as a tourist visitor, well, they're already ready to spend a little cash and support things. Because I think we're losing um, some of the neighborhood people and some of the locals. Many of them really know certain forms and really, you know, clap to it, know it, and, and you feel like you're collaborating with people here. So that would be my thought. I, maybe somebody will call me from Jazz Fest and say, what do you mean? <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, this is just my sense of it, uh, looking, looking in on it. I don't have to produce it. I think it's very well produced. Uh, I, you know, the Music Heritage Stage run by Ben Sandmel, a great place for conversations. I had Keely, Keely Smith there a few years ago, and all kinds of characters and, come and through. And did you develop the, uh, with the cultural life stage at the World's Fair? Yeah, yeah. Um, we developed with the support of the National Park Service and the timber industry, thanks to Russell and Carolyn Long's generosity and help. Uh, we did the Louisiana Folklife Pavilion, and that was one of our first really big breakouts in the state with the state programmers, focusing on deep traditional music. Uh, as it happened, a lot of people came from the Florida parishes, um, from Baton Rouge, French Louisiana, and of course New Orleans. And uh, we were in the old Federal Fiber Mill building and we had uh, dis displays and we had performance in the club called The Back Door and uh, cooking demonstrations. Uh, one of the great strange tragedies was that, oh, who was it who died on stage? One of the piano players got up. Now I'm forgetting his name. Uh, he, he got up, took a bow, and fell forward, face forward, and that was it. Um, but, you know, most, you know, people all said he must have smiled. I said, I don't know if he was smiling, but uh, it, it was a really great thing for us, and we got tremendous reviews in the national uh, press, and uh, that helped the program, that helped everybody. And from there, you know, that got me going. It got, when I left Louisiana for the first time, I went to Smithsonian and started doing a lot of big shows on the National Mall, Fourth uh, of July, Carnegie Hall, Wolf Trap. That gave me some experience in producing bigger shows. And but in the end, uh, I came back here in 1997 to start American Roots, and I'm really glad I did. I feel like it's the right time, and we've had a good run, 25 years, and uh, we've gotten lots of artists on the air, and done a lot of shows. Uh, and you know, radio you can do pretty efficiently. Uh, you can just play this record and change the genre. You don't have to have a big stage and a setup. But we still do live stuff. We've done a whole bunch of uh, American Roots live since the COVID period. So so I'm happy. <laughs> well, you're dealing with a, with, with a good thing. I mean, with, I mean, with a good topic, and you're doing a great job with it. And plus, you've got all these people around the country. How many listeners do you have? Uh, we think that on a good good week, uh, the right times of year, it's about three-quarter million. We're, on th yeah, over, we're over 380 stages. Well, there's no public media that I know of between Austin and Chapel Hill. And I'm including television like Austin City Limits and Chapel Hill uh, had a, a thing called story time or storytelling. But I mean, interestingly enough, on public media right now on NPR, I mean, there's so many talk shows. And here we are talking, but you know, so many talk shows. Um, and I think they've overdone it. I think they're too repetitive of, of political analysis and certain topics all the time. I think Americans need to be reminded of what we've created both together and in discrete groups. Uh, and I think mu sure. words, music, and songs are a way to go. And, and obviously, Roots, with very little major support, we've been able to survive and build. Um, you know, it's a small operation, three or four people working on it. And uh, I'm extremely proud that we are, you know, New Orleans national media <laughs> based in large part on our location uh, with reference, you know, the, the Gulf South. So it's a I'm lucky to be back, and that people would be willing to work with me over the years. Yeah. Now, you all were off for a while during the COVID thing, weren't you? Well, no, we, we weren't able to travel the country as much and get people to go into studios, so we started doing more and more live. Uh, people wore masks into the studios. Yeah. Um, but we weren't off the air. No, no, we did. In fact, we grew during COVID. We added about 80 stations. Oh, really? Yeah, I think Everybody a lot had to stay home. Of, well, people were staying home and listening to more radio. We played a number of shows that were about being comforted through tra trauma, trial, trouble. We did thematic shows, uh, and then we had all this live stuff. 
And then one of our big, I won't say competitors, but one of the famous shows live from here, it used to be Prairie Home Companion, uh, went away because they couldn't tour anymore and make the money needed for the show. And so um, we picked up a lot of their stations. Um, the other time we grew, grew a lot of stations was after Katrina. Uh-huh. You know, when, when uh, people were hungry for the news of the Gulf South and we had culture bears talking about their lives and what had happened and what the, why they were staying and who'd written a song about the hurricanes, et cetera. So, you know, you just keep at it and, and, and it works out, I think. Now, aren't you a musician yourself? Well, I always say this two things. I say, first, I do play the guitar, but I, more than playing the guitar, I play with the guitar. I don't <laughs> see myself as a performer uh, other than, you know, a little strumming of blues and country. Um, the other thing I'll say is what uh, um, was said to me uh, by a, a singer from Tippo, uh, Mississippi, uh, who uh, went north uh, to make his way in jazz, at blues and jazz, which is when I interviewed him back at the old station in Philly, he said, do I have to play? And I said, this is Mose Allison. He's a uh-huh. white blues singer you may have heard of, and he's since passed. And I said, no, Mose, you don't have to play. We're just going to talk. He says, oh, it's going to be chin music, I bet. <laughs> so I feel like if I play something, chin music, <laughs> conversation. Well, thank you. This has been delightful. I've learned a lot. Thank you. This is, um, Thanks to you for all your great work uh, with Louisiana culture in New Orleans. Uh, thank you. All the things you and your family do to, <sighs> to get the word out, both within and celebrating within and... Also reaching far afield. Proud to be part of it. This is uh, Nick Spitzer, who's the host of American Roots, which in New Orleans, you still in WWNO? WWNO, both Friday and Saturday. I'm sorry, yeah. Saturday and Sunday night, 5 to 7, Saturday, 6 to 8, Sunday. Okay. We're going to go out the way we started um, with Jerry Lee Lewis and Clifton Chenier. Kelly, well. Do it and make it do it until you break It's called a Lewis Boogie Any Lewis way The Lord, I do my little boogie woogie every day Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.